The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Uh, a lot of people, when they hear the term pedophile, they automatically assume that it means a sex offender. Uh, and that isn't true. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, it's good to be with you. I'm going to give you a quick uh, cautionary tale as we get close uh, to this next segment. Just uh, if you got young children, we're going to be dealing with a very sensitive issue here. And... Um, you know, it may not be appropriate for little ears. So I'll just I'll leave that out there. I'm sure a number of people are wondering about my conversation last hour with the uh, two doctors, Dr. Trisankos, um, uh, Trisankos is who are with us. Uh, they were talking about ethical vaccines that are now being manufactured and are uh, in the pipeline. Covaxin is one of those. That's C-O-V-A-X-I-N. You can do a quick search for that. And the other is, um, I think it's Sinopharm, which is S-Y-N-O-P-H-A-R-M. Uh, those are not yet approved here in the States, uh, but I believe they are in the pipeline. And I know some people have waited uh, for an ethical alternative, and that may be coming coming your way. And again, I, I want to be clear. I don't want a lot of confusion over the issue. You know, the USCCB and the Pope have said, hey, um, you can get the the vaccines that are currently in, manu- in you know, in, in manu- being manufactured. Uh, we're talking about, of course, Pfizer and Moderna and some of the other vaccines. So, uh, we can talk much more about that in the future. I just want to throw that out there. I don't want you to be too confused. Uh, right now, though, um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, what we're seeing as a result of COVID. I, and I, I found some amazing data recently, Service. Um, it has done a lot of things in our world, and not not many of them are good. And I'm, I'm, so I'm going to be talking in a segment. I'm going to be talking with Jake Robertson coming up. And again, I just I don't know how old your your kids are, but... I just recommend that um, you be cautious. Uh, we'll be dealing with mature material here. There's an organization in Britain. It's called the Internet Watch Foundation. And they monitor child sexual abuse online. And what they found happening in the last year, uh, to me, is is just horrific. I, I almost thought about not covering this, but... I do think it deserves being discussed. I, I, I just want you to be aware of what's unfolding here, just so you can protect those you love. Uh, according to the, the website unheard.com, IWF, right, the Internet Watch Foundation, they had to take action over um, on 250,000 URLs, some of those which contain thousands of images and videos. You compare that to the 150,000 in 2020 and in go back another year 200 to 2019 they had 130,000. We're looking at a quarter of a million this past year. So what they did is they investigated uh, something like 360,000 reports which is more than they dealt with the entire first 15 years of their in, their existence. So they found that kids themselves were generating large numbers of these images. So we're, we're talking about kids between the ages of 11 and 13 taking pornographic pictures and then posting them online. And of course, the people who view those images aren't necessarily kids, so they're more likely adults. And we're seeing a manifestation of child porn right now. And this is some of the most insidious thing you'll ever see. I, I remember speaking to a, uh, a detective, a cyber detective, who was on the program with me in the past, and he often says that pornography is a very slippery slope, that you begin to look at something and then what was once titillating or exciting or you know, uh, is no longer, and, and you need you need to get a bigger high. And he says he's found in a lot of the cases that he investigated, pornography's left to child porn. It, it has led down that pathway 
unfortunately. Um, and this is a huge problem right now. But we're, we're seeing an effort right now underway to normalize sexual attraction to children. And this is the dysfunction, the disorientation of our day. USA Today ran an article. And again, I just, I, I can't explain it other than then we are living in a time of, of, of diabolic disorientation. Um, they call pedophilia one of the most misunderstood psychological conditions in the country. One of the most misunderstood psychological conditions in our country. They said that people with it shouldn't be called pedophiles, no. They should be called minor attracted persons. They, they said the association of, of pedophiles with children, with child sexual abuse is a stereotype and just another form of sexual orientation. The blowback, of course, against USA Today was pretty strong, but you know this follows you know the firing of an old Dominion University professor who wrote a paper saying pretty much the same thing. Uh, here to talk a little bit about it, give us some perspective, is Jake Robertson. He is um, Robertson. He's uh, he's vice president of communications for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. And this is a great group. You know, as the Super Bowl comes up, we see a lot more of this too. Um, check out their website, nsexualexploitation.com. Okay, that's where you'll get more information. Uh, Jake, thanks for your patience. It's good to have you on the air with me today. Absolutely. Appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, the group I talked about in the open is, of course, based in Britain. So I'm assuming the numbers here in the States are probably much larger. We're a much bigger nation. But um, what are we seeing here? And, and, and maybe even just looking at Britain, why is this happening? Why are we seeing a spike in this type of consumption and, and productivity, if you will? I know more of this type of stuff's being produced. What's the connection between COVID and child sexual abuse? Yeah, I think it's important to uh, your point about the difference between the Great Britain and the UK. It's actually important to sort of recognize how international this problem has become at um, at a pretty common level for children. Like this is no, this is not an issue that is over there, or you know, it, it's an issue that is affecting kids in every country around the world. And so it does take um, an international lens as well as a national lens to um, to understand. I mean, as an example, uh, relating to the scope of the problem, even prior to the, the pandemic, the New York Times in uh, late 2019 had put out a report, uh, a pretty detailed report on the rise of the distribution of child sexual abuse material online. Um, there were 18.4 million reports in 2018 alone. And, uh, and that, that trend has of child sexual abuse material, which is sometimes referred to colloquially as child pornography, but we think it's more accurately referred to as child sexual abuse material, has been growing exponentially online since the the rise of online pornography, talking about that link between the two that you mentioned earlier, and uh, especially with the rise of these pornography tube sites, quote unquote, you know, the, the, the YouTubes of pornography like Pornhub, which has uh, generated a lot of attention in the media for um, non-consensually shared pornographic images for child sexual abuse material appearing on its platform. And so then where we transition into seeing the link of this rise already being exponential prior to the pandemic, and then uh, how it's been exacerbated further by the pandemic is just the access that children have and the amount of time that they spend 
online with kids um, moving to remote learning and being given devices uh, to, to use for hours on end throughout the day when maybe they would normally have been in school just increases the, the, the chances. It increases the percentages. It increases the, the number of targets that are um, now available online to predators. And social media apps, um, in particular, that kids and in and, and online gaming that kids are flocking to become ripe um, for opportunity for predators and for abusers to groom and exploit children. So, are, are government authorities doing anything about this? I mean, is it on their radar? And, and, and what's ultimately being done? These numbers are staggering. Yeah, they're they're huge. Um, so yes and no. There are places where, uh, you know, the FBI early in the pandemic, as early as March of 2020, began warning uh, and began a campaign attempting to warn parents about this increased uh, access to kids that um, predators might have given kids being online more often and on unprotected devices more often. And um, also we see legislation that's being worked up and, and will hopefully be introduced fully soon, um, like the Earn It Act uh, is legislation that we've been a part of helping um, shape and, and working with survivors and uh, lived experience experts to get out there to, to better protect children from this online sexual abuse. And so hopefully when that drops, there will be an opportunity. You mentioned our website and sexualexploitation.org for folks to contact their elected officials to say, hey, we support these types of measures. Um, there's also state legislation that's been popping up, um, like in Utah, where device, uh, where there would be legislation that if more states can adopt this legislation, um, that would require the, uh, device manufacturers to default settings, uh, safe uh, filtering settings and parental control settings to on for minors. Uh, when they get these devices. And uh, we're seeing corporations starting to take um, some more responsibility as well. There was a big victory this past year in 2021 where um, Google, who provides Chromebooks to many of these schools for remote learning and beyond, is now, thanks to parents and concerned individuals, um, advocating to them directly and uh, saying that this is an issue, our kids are getting these unprotected devices, is now defaulting its safety settings That's for great. the millions of devices that it sends to schools for kids to use to be to have the parental controls and these safety features on. So, um, as big as the problem is, as daunting as it can seem, there is uh, there are efforts underway to protect kids, and and there is movement, there are success, there's success happening, there's victories that are being had to make kids yep. safer in this space. Yeah, which is great news. And, and you know, I think a parent should do the due diligence to know what their kid is doing on their device, their tablet, their, their laptop, their phone, whatever it might be, uh, and make sure those safety protocols are put into place. But, you know, as you zoom out and you take it outside of the kid and the, and the family unit, um, we are dealing with an attitude change here, too. Uh, yeah, I remember, I think it was several years ago, uh, there was a movement to make pedophilia into into just another sexual orientation, as bizarre as that sounds. Uh, it was tried years ago by a group called the, uh, by Mambla, I think it was, the, the Man-Boy Love mm -hmm. Association. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, we hear these professors making a case for it. Let me, I'm going to play a piece of audio here, and I'd love you to comment on this. And if you want to join the conversation, too, feel free to dial in at 888-914-9149. But, um, Jake, listen to this. Here, here's a little more detail on what Dr. Alan Walker was saying regarding 
pedophilia and how that term in his opinion eh, might need to be redefined or, or reinterpreted. Listen. The controversy surrounding Old Dominion University professor Dr. Alan Walker centers around their argument that not everyone who is attracted to children will abuse children. It isn't actually a choice. So people are just born with this condition. In an interview with the Prostasia Foundation, Walker said the term minor attracted people or MAPS, should be used to describe people who are attracted to children. It's less stigmatizing than other terms like pedophile. Uh, a lot of people, when they hear the term pedophile, they automatically assume that it means a sex offender. Uh, and that isn't true, and it leads to a lot of misconceptions about attractions toward minors. But not everyone sees it that way, including people on campus like Andrew Lombakis, president of the ODU College Republicans. I'm actually uh, thinking about planning a peaceful protest against Alan Walker. In the interview, Walker stressed child sexual abuse is never okay. They explained there is a difference between attraction and behavior. Walker said there is no morality attached to attraction because that's something we can't help. So what do you make of that argument that Dr. Walker is, is putting forward? Um, you know, pedophilia, you associate with a sex offender, but that's not always the case. W what do you make of, of that position? And, and, and I don't know whether it's common. I don't know whether people hold the same type of view. Yeah, it's, it's an unfortunately, um, it sounds like it's a safe, and I, I want to be sure to say I'm not right. saying it is a safe, it's, but I can see how they're t attempting to make it sound like it's a safe way of um, having empathy on people and having compassion for people who are dealing with right. something that they don't want. Unfortunately, it's a straw man and, and it's a dangerous one because it, why we're, we're leaving the kids out of this conversation. We're leaving the safety of the kids out of this conversation and acting as though we need to be um, at giving more deference to, to those who would potentially put children in danger and saying that we need to destigmatize something that could put children in danger. And that's, an un, that's not a line that we, uh, anybody should be playing around with. You know, our, our children are our most valuable treasure. And, and anything that destigmatizes potential harm to them should throw up a lot of red flags. And that's where I'm glad to see people, you know, pushing back against these straw man arguments to say that this is the distinction you're making is unhelpful. Like what is it, who does it actually serve to, to try to destigmatize um, the sexual, you know, uh, attraction, you know, even using these terms, I, I, I go back to, the, the point I mentioned earlier about the difference between calling something child pornography mm -hmm. and child sexual abuse material. Mm -hmm. and, and if anything, we ought to be strengthening the terms I we agree. use around um, protecting kids and the abuse of kids because pornography has become such a normalized term in our society that even when we hear the term child pornography, we, know, we still know it's wrong, but it sounds softer. You know, it sounds like, well, it's... It, 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 that, it's child pornography, it's, it's bad, but eh. when you say yeah. child sexual abuse material, there's a hard line here. This is what is happening. Child abuse is happening. So anytime we soften these terms, we're putting kids at risk, and they're the most vulnerable group in this conversation. Yeah, I, I, they ought I, to be front and center of any of our conversations about um, stigmatizing, and like they're the ones who are going to be harmed by this more than anything. 
Yeah, I love the fact you said that. I, I could not agree with you more. I mean, I've talked about this a lot on the air, I and mean, there's a power in words and the way we cage things, the way we present them. And there is a desensitization, a certain type of language. And and you're, you're right, pornography is one of those. Um, we should call it for what it is and not water it down. And I, I, I think we need to take our language back and start using it in a way that can protect our children. I'm, I'm curious, this doctor struck me making a case for you know, pedophilia not being, you know, just about sex offenders, but another sexual orientation. Where are the stats on that? Are, are there any stats, uh, you know, uh, what do they do to back that up? And, and where are we with that in terms of another sexual orientation? We have lots of those. Yeah, I don't know that there's good stats on that. Um, and I think they would argue that that's because of the stigma, you know, who nobody wants yeah. to identify as that. It's a diff- an inherently difficult thing to study. And and unfortunately, just in general, issues of sexual abuse and exploitation are largely understudied. And, you know, that's something that the, the Research Institute at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation is, is working to amend, both by um, helping to encourage and generate um, good data-driven research on these issues, as well as, you know, helping people analyze um, research to understand where it's good and where it, it is not good, where it falls short. So, um, you know, we, there's not good research on this as far as to back that up. It's, you know, it's largely an anecdotal, you know, it's a, it's an emotional play more than it is a data-driven play when, when you're making this appeal. Whereas we know, hey, there's a, a lot of kids out there, you know, and uh, we, are, we owe it to them to keep them as safe as possible. You know what really has perplexed me, though, is, is I was reading about this and was diving into what they found. I mean, we have this spike, of course, 2019, 2020 is even more, 2021, quarter of a million URLs that contain thousands of these images and videos of, of child porn, fundamentally, child abuse material, as you point out. Um, but the kids that are involved in this, 11 to 13, right, or young kids, I mean, is this a failure on the part of the parents? I mean, what is happening that you literally have children uh, manufacturing this type of stuff, being involved in this type of stuff? I mean, it's just, to me, it's just so outside of my frame of reference. You know, what what's going on right now? These numbers are in a trajectory that seem like every year they're just getting bigger. Yeah, this is um, where we really get into complexities, as you mentioned, of all the different reasons why these numbers um, are exploding. It, it is in no small part just due to you have more kids online, this problem is going to grow. You know, um, if X percentage of kids are going to experience online sexual abuse and that number of children, the number of children going online is increasing at the rate that it is, then it makes sense. But it's also due to the fact that because the, the access of children to um, the Internet is growing so fast and so quickly and companies that um, provide access or apps to kids to access um, online gaming or social media platforms, um, they, they're not currently, um, there's very few protections in place that or requirements in place that force these, um, these developers to put user safety or child safety uh, as a priority when they're developing it. And, and that's something we spend a lot of time on um, to, to help these platforms see how um, even the way they design their apps to be used, like social media, for example, like with um, Instagram, as an example, 
for people to be able to send messages to people they're not friends with, um, that's a that's a tool that predators can use to message kids, to pretend to be another kid, to develop a relationship with them, to groom them as though they're another child, and then to trade sex with them and then blackmail them for more content. I mean, we are actually um, currently in the middle of a lawsuit against Twitter for facilitating and profiting from child sexual abuse material and child sex trafficking because of a of a teenage boy who you know, lived at home with his parents, you know, went to school, was a, your normal, average, everyday American um, child, young teenager, and developed a relationship with somebody via Snapchat um, and thought it was, you know, just like another high school student, ended up trading, you know, some, um, some sexts, which, again, we want to make sure this is self-generated child sexual abuse material. Turns out the person or persons that did this with was um, – you know, and it was actually an adult who then took that material, blackmailed, blackmailed the child for more, wow. and then started distributing it on other platforms like Twitter. And wow. um, and then Twitter, even when contacted by the parents, by the child, they proved the identity of the child, all of that, refused to take it down until there was a threat of federal law enforcement getting involved, you know. Wow. And so you have a, a complex mix of factors that um, make children vulnerable Um, not just within our traditional risk categories of them being more poor or not having, you know, healthy family figures uh, and role models in their lives and things like that. Those, those children are still more at risk, but now even kids who, you know, think that they are quote unquote innocently engaging with their peers are at more risk than they've ever been before in these online spaces. So that's just some evidence. And we have more stories like this, more data on this on our website. Again, that's nsexualexploitation.org. But those are just a few examples that kind of show the the complexity and unfortunately the the invasive um, presence of these risks in the average child's life today. Yeah, well, I'm grateful for what you do. The website is called Ed and sexualexploitation.org. You can learn a lot more about this. Let me get final thoughts from you, too, just in terms of what parents can do and and where we are. I mean, we need to do this on a very local level, but I also hope that uh, you know, that that we do something on a much larger level, too, a governmental level, to, to provide a level of protection. But some final thoughts from you in terms of what we're seeing and, and how we can ultimately keep those we love safe. Yeah. So, um, you said it earlier, the involvement of parents or um, role models, guardians is paramount. You know, we, 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 this was something we jumped on early in the pandemic because we knew this was already an issue um, prior to the pandemic. But, you know, we had, we put this on our website. Here are the five things you need to do right now to make your children safer. You know, number one, hold a family meeting, talk about why exactly you're concerned for them. Have those honest conversations with them in age-appropriate ways. Um, Then talk to each of your children about their personal internet usage. Make it unique because each of your kids is going to have different interests. They're going to be like different apps, all of that. Get unique to and personal and custom to each kid. Then set up your parental controls and follow through on those. You know, work them together as a family. Number four, Limit the time that you spend online. That's great advice just in general, but especially for our kids. And, and then number five is um, taking action to contact our elected officials on, um, 
on legislation such as the Earn It Act, as well as these platform, these uh, technology platforms like Google, like Twitter, like Instagram, like Netflix. Um, we house these petitions to make it easy for folks to contact um, executives at these companies or their elected officials, um, but to support solutions that are going to make uh, parents' lives even easier. Because we know there's a lot of kids out there that don't have that family support. Um, so, and that, and that need help, you know, and because they're very vulnerable. And so those are, those are some of the things we recommend. We've got recommendations on our website for the best, um, filtering systems to use for your different types of devices, uh, to make this, um, you know, to, to really help yeah. you be successful as parents and families in this space. And if you know somebody that's struggling with this, please check out endsexualexploitation.org. Jake Robertson is the vice president of communications for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Jake, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Keep up your good work. We're grateful for it. We need it. Will do. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having this conversation. You got it. It's Jake Robertson. Check him out. Endsexualexploitation.org. Stay with me when I return. There's much more ahead. You can get in. I'll give you the latest on the Biden administration making lists of religious vaccine objectors. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. Your life connected. It's the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Well, good to have you with me today. Thanks for for joining us. You know, yesterday we spoke about the Supreme Court allowing an injunction to be placed on the federal government's mandate that um, all employees with more than 100 employees had to make sure their employees were vaccinated. OSHA's mandate did allow for religious exemptions, which is more than can be said for the state of New York. But the, the injunction was allowed because the court said that OSHA didn't have that authority. Uh, and a great conversation. If you missed it, you can go back to the, our podcast from yesterday and uh, a couple of different guests exploring what the court ruled. And we also just talked about uh, about vaccinations and lawsuits and a lot of different things. The, the religious exemption part is causing a lot of headaches right now for employers and governments. Members of the military are especially having problems. Uh, one of the things that's happening is demands are being made that, that people prove the religious beliefs and practices. And really, if you think about it, that's unconstitutional, right? But it's still happening. That's what's being, that's what's being, um, you know, demanded. The Heritage Foundation's Daily Signal, they, they recently found a, uh, a tiny federal agency in Washington that's doing something, it's really interesting, if, if that's the right word. The, the uh, oh gosh, it's the uh, pretrial service agency for the District of Columbia, it, ass- it assists judicial officers in the city's court systems. And what they did is they announced a new record system, a new system of records that will store the names and personal religious information of all employees who make religious accommodation requests for religious exemptions from the federally mandated vaccine requirement. Um, Now, I don't know about you. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't know how you feel about that. Do you want your employer, especially the, the government, Tracking your personal religious information? Uh, of course, I, I work here at a wonderful network. work at Relevant Radio. Everyone knows my religious affiliation and my personal religious belief. I'm very vocal about that on a daily basis. But I, let's say you're working as a, I'd say I was working as a secular broadcaster, right? Or you're working someplace and it might be problematic for you. Um, do you want 
your personal religious information put into a database? Is it their business? You know, what your religious belief is or how you practice. Um, and, and it, you know, if that's a private company, it's one thing. What about the government? It goes doubly for that, right? It goes doubly. I'm joined today by Eric Niffen. He is, uh, he practices law and he's been with us in the past. He's with uh, Louis Roca in Colorado Springs where he's, he's worked on the HHS mandate. And before that he was at Beckett, Beckett Law and, and worked on the mandate as well as that very important Hosanna Tabor case and other religious liberty cases. And he's a convert to the faith, um, and it's always a delight to have him here with us. And Eric, before um, I even begin, I just I want to express my condolences to you and, of course, to your wife, uh, Bonnie. I, I just recently found out that you lost uh, your son. And, and, and Eric's son was nine years old. His name was Michael. Um, and he was born with a condition that made him profoundly dependent on others. But he was such a source of great joy for their family. And, and there are some people who are saying that he's already proving to be a great intercessor. I heard some people turning to his intercession and their prayers being promptly answered. But yeah, I just publicly, I know you've been a friend to the show for, for quite a while. And uh, when I heard that news, I offered prayers for your family. And I, just, I want to ask everyone to pray for you and your family as well. Can't imagine what you're going through, but my deepest condolences. Thank you, Drew. It's been a hard couple of weeks, but it's also been really beautiful. Uh, it's given us really the opportunity to reflect as a couple and as a family on um, the gifts that God gave us through, you know, a really fragile life and, and how it's changed our family. So it's been a real uh, blessing through the tears to reflect on that and to share some of that with others. So thank you for your words and for your prayers. No, you got it. My, my heart literally, it, it, it pounds for you. It, it breaks. I can't imagine losing a nine-year-old child, but uh, we're yeah. with you and our prayers will be with you. And I'm, I'm grateful for you coming on today you, to talk about this issue. I'm grateful for you coming on in the past. Let, let's talk about what's happening here. I don't know how big of a deal it, it is, but I'd love your perspective on it. This is a little tiny agency. I've never heard of them until just recently, uh, but they're tracking mm -hmm. employees' religious practices. Um, should we be concerned uh, about that? And, and give me your, your take on it. We should be, Drew, uh, but let's start by giving the most charitable interpretation to this. So, you know, we can imagine people out there who are rolling our eyes saying, man, this guy, you know, Drew Mariani and Eric Niffen, they just, everything's outrageous to them. Here we have a tiny little federal agency that I'm sure has a very good reason for wanting to keep some very simple records, and there's no indication that they're going to do anything with it, and so why all the fuss? So let's just start there. Um, two problems. First of all, uh, a simple act like this can serve as a blueprint for further government action down the line. So even if this agency, this pretrial services agency, doesn't do anything with it, uh, it's still problematic. Uh, you mentioned, Drew, uh, my work on the HHS mandate. Um, I was with Beckett on that from the very beginning. Uh, in the very beginning, there was no religious exemption. But about a year in, the uh, administration um, uh, relented a bit and said, okay, we'll create a religious exemption. But they created a definition of a religious employer that was amazingly narrow. Um, in order to qualify, the primary purpose of the organization must be the inculcation of religious values. And a lot of people threw up their hands and said, well, then Mother Teresa is out. Mother Teresa is not a religious employer because her primary objective is, is uh, loving the poor. And, you know, there were other parts of the definition too, but that was one that people immediately just sort of took their breath away. Well, in defending that, the administration says, well, we didn't come up with that exemption. We borrowed it from, from Hawaii, which uses it in this context. 
And that's a really easy way for government to get off the hook when they want to do something, but they don't want to take responsibility for it. They can just shrug and say, well, we're just using something that was a precedent somewhere else and no one seemed to fuss. And so we thought that that would work. And so here too, uh, something that might seem rather innocuous because there's no indication that this agency is going to use it in this way or that, it's still a precedent. And it says, well, a federal agencies have in the, in the past collected its information, so we see no reason why X agency cannot do so here. So that's the first reason it bothers me. Second of all, we have seen before, again, this is the Obama administration, but we have seen the Obama administration use lists of religious organizations um, in order to intimidate people. So back in the Obama administration, uh, before the Bostock decision, which uh, uh, asserted that federal civil rights law uh, in, included uh, sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination, the Obama administration just said it on its own. And when that happened, a lot of schools, uh, K through 12 schools and colleges and universities that received, um, that participated in, in various federal programs, including federal loans, um, they applied for religious exemptions under Title IX. The Obama administration collected that information and created a website, a searchable database of all schools that had applied seeking religious exemptions. And a lot of people called that a shame list. The state of California used that as the basis of uh, its own legislation, saying that anyone that appeared on that list had to abide by various different steps. There was one stage in the process at which any school that appeared on that list was going to be uh, ineligible for state funding through the Cal Grants program. So I'd say those are two things that come to mind, Drew. First of all, even if it's innocuous, it can be used as a precedent. And then secondly, we've seen uh, the administration where our current president was a vice president, we've seen that administration do make public lists of organizations that are uh, using their religious convictions in um, or uh, voicing religious convictions that are contrary to the administration's objectives. So those are two big problems for me. And just in terms of legality, uh, is it legal or, or is what they're doing illegal? Um, I, I don't have a strong opinion on that um, off, off the top of my head. Certainly the employer has this information. Right. Um, so I don't see why it would be illegal for that employer, which has that information, to simply compile it in a certain type of a way. You know, so yep. if people are making uh, religious requests for religious exemptions, those names are written down somewhere. Yep. And I don't see immediately why it would be illegal for that employer to, you know, in a simple Excel file, gather those names. Right. Right. Um, but they're obviously taking a step that they didn't think was necessary before. So they're doing something that they hadn't, you know, so religious exemptions have been around for ages, decades right. and decades. So what is new here? What is going on that they have to keep a list where they weren't doing so before? So it's not absolutely necessary for the administration of religious accommodations. Um, so I think that's one way to sort of approach this is sort of saying, why are you doing this now if you haven't had previously? So it's not so much the legality of it as what's mm -hmm. the purpose of it and what is the uh, what, what could, what, what does this agency want to do with this information and what could be used, uh, with it in the purpose in, in the yeah. future. My guest today, Eric Niffin, if you want to join us, the toll free number, triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. maybe you're experiencing this in your workplace. Love to hear from you. You know, I have been following these stories, members of the, uh, the military in particular, having a hard time uh, with this. There's a group of Navy SEALs that had a, uh, 
a judge uh, uphold their claims to religious exemptions. The Defense Department hasn't given a single exemption, from what I understand, to, to anyone in the military. Um, what's up with the military? Why are they being so hard-nosed about this? Yeah, the, the way the law is written on this is actually, it's, it's kind of tough from a religious perspective. And so the, the two things have to happen in order for you to get a religious accommodation for your employer. The first is the employer has to recognize that you have a sincere religious belief. And that's where it's, the employer is in a pretty tough position. It, it's, it's not easy to say that you believe your employee is insincere. Yeah. And most employers do that pretty readily. But the second one's a lot tougher. And the second one says that um, the employer does not have to accommodate you um, if it finds that doing so would create an undue burden. And what counts as an undue burden? It's a pretty generous test. So basically, uh, anything that is more than a hiccup to the employer. And so you take that test and then you put it in the context of the military, where there's already a lot of deference to the government in terms of what are things that might compromise military morale or what might compromise um, readiness or security. The same thing you see in prisons, too, that prisons get a lot of deference. Not absolute, but quite a bit of deference. Um, and uh, so it's in that context that uh, government does, under the law, have quite a bit of freedom to, to administer this sort of religious accommodation, uh, these requests. Uh, I still don't like it, and I, I still yeah. think the fact that given the enormous array of positions within the military that they're not granting an right. exemption for any is highly suspicious. Um, yeah. But it does not surprise me that they've been quite stingy. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I just I sit back and I wonder, well, where does it go? Um, you know, if this agency is tracking their employees' religious practices, um, will the government expand that? Um, and and maybe mm-hmm. not just to other federal agencies. I mean, what's the danger in, in this, or is this just an anomaly and just something to be aware of? Well, that that's why I'm concerned. It's a non. It's appears to be an anomaly right now. I'm not aware of any instance where this has happened. That's why you and I are talking about it. Um, and again, maybe this pretrial services uh, office won't do anything with it. Maybe if they do something with it, it'll be really benign, but it's a placeholder. And uh, government creep often happens by small steps. Yeah. And so I, I think it's, uh, you know, I would like to see Congress take this up and ask questions and say, why is this being done? Why is it? Why was it necessary? Where did the idea come from? Uh, I'd like those questions to be asked, because uh, you know, even though this may be relatively benign now, um, it has the opportunity to be something that that grows and grows. Yeah, I know. I I, I know OSHA lost their case at the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Um, Are we going to see another attempt at at some kind of national mandate? I know the president would love this. What, What do you see coming? Well, I think the next step here is this is going to go back to the Sixth Circuit, and the Sixth Circuit is going to have to decide um, how it wants to respond to the Supreme Court's decision. Um, the, the, the smart thing to do is to heed what the Supreme Court said, but we've certainly seen uh, other cases. Uh, this tends to happen a lot in the Ninth Circuit, where mm-hmm. the Supreme Court pushes back, and then the Ninth Circuit turn around, turns around and pushes, pushes back really hard again. Excuse yeah. me. No, no problem. So I don't well, know, but I think yeah. that's going to be the next step here is to see how the Department of Justice uh, responds in the Sixth Circuit, whether they want to keep pushing or whether they want to sort of yield on this. Final thoughts here. Just, I'm curious as the big picture. Where we are as a nation right now, are there greater attacks on 
the free exercise of our religion or religious liberty, you see an erosion of that happening. Have things plateaued? I mean, you've been in a, some big fights. You know, you've been defending religious liberties. Where are we? How do you see it? How do you read it? And, and does it change with administrations? Oh, it certainly does change with the administration. Uh, Drew, I, I think what bothers me most right now is the rhetoric around religious liberty and the, 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 the fact that this has become, unfortunately, a partisan issue. Uh, and uh, on, on the one hand, we are seeing the Supreme Court being very generous, uh, is being a strong protector of religious liberty. And so that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But the bad thing is that we need the Supreme Court to be doing that. Uh, and that we're in, in living in a, a society in where a lot of institutions, uh, a lot of federal leaders, including several Supreme Court justices, speak really derisively of religious liberty, as if it's being used as a front in order to, to, um, to protect bigotry uh, and in order for people to get their own way. And so that sort of suspicion and the cultural attitude, particularly around um, these the sexual liberty issues, whether it's abortion or same-sex marriage or transgender issues, um, there is an enormous amount of pressure against religious liberty in those areas. And so even though the Supreme Court's been really, really strong, uh, the overall attitude, which has shifted against religious liberty, really concerns me. Yeah, well, keep up your good work. I'm, I'm really grateful for all that you've done. I know you'll be on the front lines of many more cases to come. And I'm grateful for your time today. And again, be assured of our deepest prayers and and just thank you for for all you've done. I'm grateful. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate it. You got it. That's Eric Niffen. And uh, of course, you can check him out uh, online. Say a prayer for him. Say a prayer for his family. Uh, As I said, uh, his young son was born with a condition that made him profoundly dependent on others. And God called him home. Um, I'll be back. Stay with me. Today's programming is brought to you by St. Gregory Recovery Center in Iowa. More information about their faith-centered addiction treatment is available at relevantradio.com slash stgregory. Keeping you better informed, educated, and inspired. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Well, thanks for joining me. What a great bumper, Patrick. Appreciate that. Well, GNR there. It's good to be with you today. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, we've covered a lot of territory today. If you have missed anything, and I want to put this on your radar, make sure you go to uh, our podcasts and download the show. I think a great way to, uh, well, share with others and turn them on to relevant radio or be better informed, better educated is to hit these podcasts. Um, you know, there's something new going up every single day. But you can go to relevantradio.com and you can go to my archives and listen to anything, download the link and share it. You can go to any place where podcasts are hosted and uh, plug into uh, into the program. And we've dealt with everything from, oh gosh, um, Afghanistan today to uh, missing Amazon orders. So you name it, it's always a mixed bag. And go back through the uh, the previous shows, you'll see a lot of great stuff to hear. Uh, of course, I hope you're going to stay safe. Um, my producer, Maggie, has been out. And I want to thank Patrick Aidlog for getting on the board with me and helping to produce the show. He's done a phenomenal job this week. Uh, we're looking at hospital numbers in uh, nearly half of our, of our country's states nearing capacity. So 
Omicron, incredibly contagious. And it has, uh, it has affected a lot of people. I know it has run through um, friends of mine. Uh, a number of my family members have, have had to deal with, uh, with, with COVID. And I'm sure you are as well. I saw a stat before the program that 18 states, and in, in, in 18 states at least, they said 85% of adults uh, intensive care unit beds were used. So that, that's a lot. 24 states, at least 80, you know, uh, and uh, we're seeing, you know, hospitals really being taxed. We're seeing a lot of hospital workers as well uh, have to call out because they're dealing with, with COVID. In, in fact, the state of Wisconsin, right? I'll, I'll give you one, well, two, I'll give you a couple states here. The, the, these are staggering numbers. I mean, state of Wisconsin, almost 91% of the ICU beds are occupied. 91%, nine out of those 10 beds are occupied, right? 41.5% of the, those with COVID patients. So, but Rhode Island, Alabama, they had the same type of numbers of being occupied. So uh, we'll hopefully get through this. You know, I have no doubt that uh, COVID will be in the rearview mirror one day. The president has pledged to deliver a billion, one billion free at home test kits to you and to me, to all Americans as these uh, test kit shortages across the country continue to hamper efforts to, to you know, get a hold on Omicron. If you've gone to any store, any pharmacy, you're going to see they're completely and totally sold out. And, um, you know, the White House said, uh, I think it was last Friday, was it, was it today? I, I forget when it was. I'd seen a report where they said that uh, 500 million at-home rapid tests will be available to order online starting on the 19th of January. So you're about five days away from that. They'd be mailed directly to your house free of charge. So you'll be able to get on and order your test uh, right there. And uh, that that would be convenient, you know, to go out, you know, to stand in line. I wonder how many people with COVID went to the pharmacy to pick these things up, you know, or stood in line to get their medication and, and how this completely I'm totally surprised. Patrick, you just had a COVID test, didn't you? You were just telling me that before the break. Yeah, actually, this was actually a couple of weeks ago uh, when I was in California for vacation. My parents were like, why don't you take a COVID test before you travel? I'm like, okay, sure. Why not? It was December 30th. And the place where we went to, we thought it was a rapid test. And the guy was like, uh, no, it's not a rapid test, but maybe you'll get your results in five days. I'm like, oh, I guess so. Whatever. We're here. We might as well do it. So my dad and I took the COVID test. It was December 30th. I mean, it was December 30th. We got our results January thirteenth. Oh my gosh! <laughs> my dad and I That's were like talking my... like like in, like about a week ago. Like, did he get your results? I'm like, nope, no. And then I got my results, and my dad called me this morning. He's like, did he get your results? They're like, yeah. And we were both negative. But I'm like, what's <laughs> what's the use? You know? Yeah, you know, it's my <laughs> sister. Uh, she had called me. She she lives in the state of Pennsylvania. I live in a different state, and she was feeling terrible over the holidays. And, and she said the same thing. She said, you know, I've got the runny nose. I've got a splitting headache. And she was going through all these different signs. I said, you know what? You have COVID. You better go and get tested. She went to try to get tested. She was put on the list. And let's just say this was, I don't know, we'll, we'll say it's January 3rd. She couldn't get in for like six days. And I'm thinking, by that point in time, you're mm -hmm. going to be through the worst of your symptoms. You're going to be feeling better. If you go in, does the test still work? Major, major backlog for tests. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you know, your test came back negative, which is which is great news for you. But uh, it would have been know, my, hilarious if it said positive. Went, I would have been like, okay. <laughs> I mean, what am I supposed to do two uh, weeks later with this info? It's, it's yeah, right. basically a throwaway text. Right. Well, at least you'd know. You'd have to go ahead and uh, that might have been the and, that might have been the positive that oh, I did have it. I guess 
you know, and I, yeah. I would recommend people get tested twice. For example, you yeah. know, COVID had run through the Mariani household and uh, my kids got it. Then my wife got it. And, and I seem to be relatively implacable when it comes to COVID. Right? And I thought, oh, it's not a big deal. I was helping my wife. I was bringing soup and tea and, you know, she was sick as can be. Right. Um, and I, you're a good husband, Drew. She got tested. She got tested. She had COVID. I got tested. I didn't, right? I'm thinking, this is amazing. I've been around all these COVID people for so long, two years now. I never yeah, but yeah, it happened two years and then ago, I too, started, with your daughter. Yeah, and you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 she, we had steak one night, and she was not feeling that great, and so I'm not really that hungry, Dad. And I said, I'll finish your steak. I ate it the next day. She's COVID positive. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm done. Never got it. So I thought, okay, I, I maybe have natural immunity. I don't know. And uh, so my wife is sick. Next thing you know, I had tested with her, and I was negative. I started to feel ill and I had to wait five days. I went back and, and ultimately was tested positive. So I had a quarantine for the, you know, allotted period of time. I'm fine today, but, but I finally got it. Um, but you know, it's so weird because the testing was so long. I'm figuring, why should I even go if I got to wait five days? You know, a lot, a lot of people have got to go through that. These at home tests that the president is going to send. I think they're a great idea. I wonder how effective they're going to be for Omicron or what the new variant. Yeah, that's one be, of the worries I, I have. That's one of the worries I have about these tests in terms of like false positives and false negatives. Exactly. And I'm assuming there's going to be more variants coming our way. I mean, Omicron is not the last, so we'll see that. But look, we only have a couple minutes. This is a big weekend for the NFL. I know you're a huge sports fan, and you're wearing your Raider jersey today. What are you wearing? Well, not a Raider jersey. Um, I do have a Raider polo that I'm wearing, and also my Raider cap. I've been wearing that to work as well. So showing my Raider pride. Hopefully they win tomorrow against the Cincinnati Bengals. Both teams have not won playoff games in forever. The Bengals have not won a playoff game since George George H.W. Bush was president. The Raiders have wow. not won a playoff game since 2002. Yeah, there's so okay. So give me your pick. So we, we you got Raiders over Bengals, right? Yep. How about the NFL wild card round for Patriots versus Bills? That will be a great game. I have, Those two teams are uh, yeah. major competitors. I have the Bills. I have Buffalo. Yeah, the Bills actually, over, over and actually, right. you know what? Uh, I have Buffalo going to Super Bowl. Yeah, Buffalo. Wow. Well, Buffalo, they started the season hot. Uh, How about this? The Philadelphia Eagles, go Eagles, uh, versus the Buccaneers. You think they can take out the Bucs? No, I don't. I hope so, (laughs) though. Uh, And we have about a minute left here, Drew. And I hope Philadelphia wins, but I think the Bucs are also going to the Super Bowl. Tampa Bay. So you, you see a Bucks bills Super Bowl. I do. Uh, but the funny fun thing for you, Drew, is uh, if Philadelphia wins, they play Green Bay next week. I know. It'd be, that'd be a tough game because I love both those teams. Steelers-Chiefs. I've got to root with Paul Kengor for the Steelers. Cardinals-Rams. Who are you going with there? Uh, Cardinals-Rams. I have I have L.A. Uh, in a nail-biter. Yeah. Uh, those are two great teams too. I mean, they, 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 when they're hot, they're both hot. You know, of course, the Niners are playing That's a classic the Cowboys. Matchup. And we'll, we'll see what I happens. I think San Francisco's winning that game. Fun weekend of football. Well, stay healthy, Patrick. Stay I safe. Thanks stay for your help this too, week. Mm-hmm. And I'll do my best. And I hope you enjoy your weekend. Enjoy some football. If you love the NFL, big, big weekend. Uh, if you're not feeling well, stay home. Get tested if you can. And don't forget to offer it up. There's a spiritual benefit to your suffering. United to that of Christ on the cross, allow it to become meritorious. We'll talk again soon. God bless.